Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Franchise pros, Stan the Man, Paul Segretto, Badlands, baby. Huh. Franchising today, sustainable growth, the sensible franchising. Franchise today, sustainable growth, the sensible franchising. Franchise today. Hello, everyone in the franchise world. My name is Paul Segreto, and this is Franchise Today. Today is Wednesday, September 13, 2017. And, of course, I'm reporting live from the Woodlands, Texas, just outside of Houston, and we are drying out. And, of course, my co-host, the ever-popular, the infamous Stan Friedman reporting from Atlanta, where he's in the process of drying out. Stan, how are you today? <laughs> well, you know what? I don't have anything to complain about compared to what Houston and or the state of Florida went through, Paul. But i got to tell you, the storm has played havoc with just traveling. I mean, I was supposed to be in D.C. right now, and uh, who knew that Irma would put its, its bullseye on Atlanta for a day or two and wreak havoc with the airport and with high winds and, and literally Southwest Airlines canceled all flights in and out of Atlanta yesterday because of the wind. So that's a first for me. But, um, hey, here we are, and I guess we'll talk more next week about what we both learn has taken place at FAN in D.C. this week because neither of us is there. Yep, absolutely. First time in a, in a long time uh, neither, of, neither of us are there. And uh, I know the airport's here. Uh, as of Monday, United still had several hundred cancellations a day, and we're already 10 days removed from Hurricane Harvey. And, of course, uh, my heart goes out to all the people in Houston, a lot of devastation here, but also to a lot of the brokers that work with me uh, that are in South Florida. Some I, 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 I have no contact with whatsoever. Last I heard this morning, 6.5 million people still without power it's going to be a long road to recovery. It certainly is. And to those franchise brands, as well as those brokers, Paul, you know, a lot of our clients have a fairly significant and large footprint in the states, both of Texas and Florida. And, you know, the only shame of all of this, I think, is is that Houston was still in so much need of awareness and more help. And I think the storm hitting Florida took everybody's attention and focus off of Houston, and all the news then became, you know, everything about Irma. Let's not forget our friends in Texas and Florida are both dramatically impacted by this storm and this season of storms, and anything that anyone in this audience can do or wishes to do uh, to assist and help with any of the units or any of the brands that have been impacted, just get in touch with Paul or me, and we'd be happy to put you in touch with franchisors who can tell you how you may be able to be of service or assistance to any of their unit unit operators in either of those states. Absolutely. On a lighter note, it was interesting to see on TV a couple actually named Harvey and Irma that was celebrating something like their 82nd uh, anniversary. I mean, what are the odds of, of those two names and, and two people being uh, named together? It's it's really uh, interesting, and at least it brings a uh, a chuckle to it. But you know, I, what really brings a a warm spark to my heart really is the help that people are um, 
just sharing with people, the assistance, uh, the hard work, the back labor, um, it's just been phenomenal. And um, I think it's just a, a, a tremendous resolve uh, towards the way humanity should be. And, of course, you know, two days ago, you know, was the anniversary of 9-11. Um, so much to discuss, you know, that we could discuss there. And, of course, uh, really aligned with, you know, us, you know, we're supposed to be going to Washington, D.C. on that day. I mean, just so many emotions that are, yeah. I know, difficult for me to deal with. And uh, But, you know, we have a strong resolve. We have a strong constitution within ourselves and as a society, and uh, and we will prevail. And what doesn't kill us, as they say, will make us stronger. Well, i got to tell you, if that is the case, I'm going to be one strong person <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, And, you know, some of it goes into that old bucket, Paul, that we always call the you-can't-make-it-up bucket. And when you talk about Harvey and Irma, yeah. that just brings a real smile, a real chuckle to my face. I remember, too, a few weeks, maybe a month or so ago, that I read something about two named storms someplace else, not in the U.S., but two named storms somewhere in the world that were inflicting havoc at the same time in different hemispheres. But one was called um, Typhoon Hillary and the other one was Typhoon Donald. And so you couldn't you couldn't make that up either. <laughs> no, you couldn't. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Well, uh, you know, there's been a lot going on, and uh, a lot has been mainstream news, and we really haven't had much of an opportunity to even talk individually amongst ourselves, Stan. Uh, what is, if, if anything, besides fan going on in, in franchising that you could report? Really, not a whole lot, Paul. A couple of things caught my eye across the wires, one which actually pleased me quite a bit. I caught something in the IFA Insider this week, and it talked a little bit about something that I think – We've all had an impression. We know there are two TV shows that, you know, franchising always has had an affinity for, one being, of course, The Undercover Boss, which has featured so, so many of our friends in the franchising world. And then we know some other brands who have taken a run at money on something called Shark Tank, which has typically had a predisposition to the negative toward franchising whenever the sharks mm -hmm. uh, have anyone presenting to them. And so I caught something in the Insider this week, which was written by a gentleman named Dave Schools. And Dave is the founder of the Entrepreneur Handbook. And what I read was published by Inc. Magazine under his byline. And it was a story about Shark Tank Shark Damon John and his investment mm -hmm. into franchising. And I had no idea. And in fact, he will be featured as one of our judges at the IFA convention for the next gen competitions going on this year right and he himself he himself will be announcing at the ifa convention the birth of a new franchise brand that he's behind and so i didn't know that so for all that i've heard about you know mark cuban and others on that show always giving the kibosh to anything franchising i was very very pleased to read that damon john's attitude toward franchising is quite a bit different that was some refreshing news paul that's very refreshing news because uh, not only did they kibosh, you know, franchising, quite frankly, I think some of them just didn't quite understand franchising, which, of course, is something that uh, is really stuck in my cross since the whole thing with Small Business Saturday and American Express and uh, excluding yep. franchising from some of the earlier events and still 
not completely brought them into the uh, picture. Well, I think that, you know, all of this can be a testament to the fact that last year's IFA chair, Aziz Hashim's vision for getting the word out on what franchising really is and what franchising is really all about is so ever so meaningful. And in, even in the joint employment issues, the misunderstanding of, of franchised relationships and how they manifest and that really these national, global, and international brands are what they are at the global level, and our guest today can certainly talk some about that. But at the unit level, those those businesses are being run by people that are your neighbors. You know, they're not being run off of Wall Street. So a lot of work yet to be done. A lot has been accomplished over the past 18 months uh, since Aziz brought that initiative to bear. But we've got a long way to go to help people really, really understand that franchising is a mom-and-pop industry surrounded by some global brands, but it's still mom-and-pop. Yep, absolutely the case. And uh, before we get too far into the show, let's bring on our guest. You know, today's uh, headline is uh, Wings, Beer, Sports, and figure skating, which was interesting as I was doing some of my own diligence for the show and coming up to speed, and uh, uh, I found that an interesting twist, but we'll let our guest uh, expand upon that. So with that, I'd like to welcome the uh, co-founder of Buffalo Wild Wings, Scott Lowry. Scott, welcome to Franchise Today. Ah, Good day, Stan and Paul. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, Stan has, to- Stan has told me a lot about you. Uh, yes, all good. So you don't have to worry <laughs> about, you know, what what went on in Buffalo stays in Buffalo. I understand that. Uh, but, no, all good, good stuff. And uh, it always intrigues me when I hear of industry segments. You know, we, we, we lump them in together in franchising by saying, you know, food service, you know, QSR, fast casual, et cetera. But, you know, the wing aspect of it, the wing segment, has a whole different personality. And Stan has been very kind and, uh, and excited to share with us uh, about that. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk some about that. But before we get any further, we want to know about Scott, you know, Lowry the person. Uh, as Stan likes to ask our guests, and, you, know, you know, you didn't come out of college or school one day and say, oh, I'm going to go into franchising. So we want to know. You know, what led to this? What got you started? Uh, you can go as far back as you'd like, but take us to the point of, uh, of, of being in, that, in Columbus in that fateful day when, uh, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings became uh, an idea. Well, actually, I'm glad, glad to have this opportunity because the story's been often, oh, changed and confused and uh, muddled and all sorts of stuff over time. So this is a nice chance to actually uh, tell the real story from the horse's mouth, my own. Um, Jim and I are actually kind of like brothers. Um, Jim actually moved into my house when he was 13 years old and I was basically three years old. And the figure skating is a thread that basically runs through our company that brought all of our partners together and was, a, like I say, a common thread. Basically, my parents were figure skating coaches. 
and Jim moved into our house to be a figure skating competitor back in the early 60s, basically, like I said, when I was three years old, probably 1963, I guess. Um, And Jim and I basically grew up and always enjoyed spending time together. Uh, I was his best man. He was in my wedding party. We vacationed together. Um, Jim even had an apartment in our house. Uh, So we were basically on top of each other all, all of our lives. Uh, he and my father had a business in Buffalo called Costumes Unlimited, where um, I spent a lot of time there working you know, as a family business. Uh, Jim and I, um, actually I guess franchise, well I won't say franchising, but Jim always had visions of, of, of a large national company. I mean, when my father and he had this costume company back in Buffalo, they envisioned having locations all over the country. We actually had them in Pittsburgh and Rochester. Um, and Jim and I would spend many hours in the car, going to those locations, working at the locations. Um, So we just grew up working together all the time. Then I went off to college. I went to Miami University. Um, The costume business was kind of waning at the time. And uh, during that period, uh, Jim wanted to get together one weekend in uh, Kent, Ohio. Um, So I left Miami University, drove up to Kent. Jim was living in Pittsburgh and drove up to Kent. Uh, we got together there in Kent and got, went out for the evening. And basically after a few drinks and bars and everything, we, we left the bars and we came out to get something to eat. And there was a Euro stand on the corner. And I wasn't very familiar with the Euros. And actually part of the reason we were there was Jim wanted me to meet his new girlfriend. So anyways, the new girlfriend sat there and said, uh, yeah, their uh, Euros are up and down the street at Ohio State. And I went, well, Miami, Miami University doesn't have Euros like this. It's kind of nasty. These flies are buzzing around and everything. And Jim's kind of defending her says, well, they're like chicken wings. They're everywhere. And I went, oh, time out. You're in Pittsburgh where they have wing dings. We both lived in Buffalo where there was chicken wings. But I'm in Ohio and there isn't any. And I'll bet you five bucks that you can't find a place that's going to serve chicken wings between now and basically 2 o'clock in the morning. So between (laughs) midnight and 2, Jim and I uh, drove all around Kent, Ohio, looking for chicken wings. Uh, we, we did these brotherly bets all the time, and you know, it was we never even paid up on them. But it was just, you know, my word against yours, who's going to win the bet, you know. So I, I ended up winning the bet. Uh, we never did eat, <laughs> so we we did go to bed hungry that <laughs> night. Um, we woke up the next morning just four hours later because Jim had to get back to Pittsburgh for something he was doing there. And as we were sitting at a Waffle House, I believe, um, you know. Somehow it came up, well, that was a wonderful idea we had last night about opening a chicken wing restaurant. And I turned and said, well, the way my grades are, I think we really need to pursue this idea. And so that was really how it all started. It was just uh, an idea coming out of the bar one night, um, hungry, looking for something to eat. And that gave us the idea to do it. Um, So we didn't go from there. Well, it it, it keeps getting more interesting all along the way. Um, I went, you know, I continued going to a school at Miami, and while I was at Miami, um, if I was taking an advertising course, I was doing something regarding Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, and advertising. I took another course my senior year that was development, like retail uh, business, and we had to do a, a project on doing a retail business from start to finish and everything, you know, every aspect of it. 
Um, when I went to do that project, I was so demanding that the, the group follow. It was supposed to be a group project. I was so demanding that it was, I was going to do it. This is the way it is, and I don't want your input, but you can just all you know tag along with me and do this report. So the two members I had sat there and were so frustrated with me. Sat there and broke off and told the teacher, we, we're, "We're not able to put any input in this guy's you know on his own tangent." So and they broke off, and I had to do it by myself. <laughs> so I did the whole project by myself. And um, I got a passing grade, which is always concerned about. Um, but this this will come up a little bit later as I tell you the story. So I, I did this report in college. Um, so that was leading up to I graduated, and I needed that job. <laughs> oh, actually, I got to step back one year prior to that. Yeah, I knew I was forgetting something. Yeah, before I graduated, um, beginning of my senior year, um, before that that summer, Jim had actually been looking at locations in Ohio State. Jim was living at Ohio State at this point in time, and we actually found a location in the middle of Ohio, Ohio State. And uh, we were, and his idea was that we we're going to go ahead and open up that store at the beginning of my senior year, which would have been 1981. And I was going to transfer from Miami University, go to Ohio State, and assist with opening up the restaurant with him and two other partners. Uh, one gentleman from Buffalo, New York, who had joined us early, a guy named Mike Balsam, and then another guy named Jeff. I don't even know his last name. The only reason I can remember Jeff is because at the time we were going to call the company J.J. Sam, which was Jim, Jeff, Scott, and Mike. So we found this location. The landlord wouldn't give us liquor. So we all looked at each other and sat there and said, well, we really don't think we can go forward without beer and wings. So we decided to table the idea. I would continue to finish my senior year, everybody else would do something, and we'd regroup basically a year from then. Well, of course, during that year, Jeff fell out of the group. Um, I continued doing, you know, went to school, I don't know what Mike did during the time, and Jim was working in uh, Columbus, I believe. So I graduated, and I moved in with Jim, and we started trying to get this thing off the ground. But unfortunately, we'd lost Jeff during that time. So we now only had three partners. Each of us was planning on putting $5,000. So it wasn't much money we had, 15000 We really needed at least a fourth partner. And maybe at this point, we needed some more money. Um, Jim and I spent the entire summer of 1982 um, driving around to anybody who had talked to us regarding investments. We went to friends, family, financial people, bankers, anybody and everybody we'd known. And I want to say it got to about August, um, and we hadn't found anybody. We went up to Buffalo, again, searching for people. We were really depressed coming back from Buffalo. Uh, Nobody was interested. And Jim Sethern said, well, hey, I've got this figure skating coach um, out in Omaha that I used to work with named Bernard Spencer. And he always dreamed of opening up a pub because he was English. He was the British pair champion in figure skating, getting this figure skating thread that runs through this thing. Um, so anyways, we, we contacted Bernard out in Omaha and Southern said, uh, of course, that I mentioned Bernard always wanted to open up a British pub. So we, we did a little spin on this. We, we called up our Jim called up Bernard and Southern said we were interested in opening up an English pub featuring uh, Buffalo style chicken wings. <laughs> and he sat there and said, well, um, I'll, I'll look at it, but can you send me a proposal? So as we're driving back from Buffalo, the only thing we had for a proposal was that uh, paper I wrote in college. So we took the report I did, 
cut it up in Fredonia, New York, and mailed it out to his broker in Columbus, Ohio. And he said, after we look at it, we'll give you a call after the weekend and tell you whether we're in or not. And we're asking for $5,000 and $15,000 investment. And Sunday night, we got a phone call from Bernard and said they were in, and we were able to proceed. Now, actually, i got to step back again one more other bit of detail. There's so many little details to this thing. The year before when we tried to open up the location uh, at Ohio State, uh, we didn't get off the ground, but somebody else from Buffalo did come into Ohio State and open a store that fall of 1981. And they opened it up um, at at 70s Woodruff, and they uh, they basically featured Buffalo-style chicken wings. Um, I'm... Well, I'll I'll say what they named it because I think that was probably part of the mistake. They took the name Chicken and Wings together and called it Ching's Wings, which I think really spoke more Oriental than Buffalo. Mm Mm-hmm. And needless yep. to say, they started in February. They started in September. They were closed by February. Well, needless to say, Jim and I, well, we were looking for locations in uh, April and May that year. Found that location, and actually worked out a deal that that would be where we go in, basically being undercapitalized. So I, I, I look back and I go, how stupid were we? We're going to a location that just did buffalo wings that just failed. Why are we going in there and think that we're going to do a better job than the guy before? I mean, it's really kind of insane. But we went in the location that had just done chicken wings one year before, several months, six months, and failed. We re we uh, addressed the inside. I, the ambiance really needed improving. It was stark white, fluorescent lights inside, so we we gave it a warmer atmosphere. Um, just kind of gussied that up a little bit. Unfortunately, we really didn't know much of what we were doing because had I told you, we had no experience. <laughs> Um, But you had plenty of vision. Yeah, that's what everybody said. You had a great idea. Um, Well, actually, again, we had no experience and we had no capital. We really were shit against the wall. It should should not have worked. uh, There's many reasons this shouldn't work. (laughs) Scott, where did the, for for the biggest mistake that the prior owners of that location made, perhaps, with their branding, it's something that didn't really reflect what it was they were there to do. Where did the name Buffalo Wild Wings come from? Was this? And by the way, speaking of names, let's just bring a second name to Jim's uh, identity. Jim Disbro was your co-founder and partner, and we've affectionately yeah. referred to him by his first name many times. But let's just bring full transparency to uh, to the legacy of the late Jim Disbro, your partner and co-founder in this wonderful thing called Buffalo Wild Wings. So, how did that name come about? And, and the know, name itself has become a bit of an iconic. Uh, presence and and it's gone through some iterations, right? Yeah, actually, that that's a great question, man, and, and it's a fun answer because actually Jim had a lot to do with this, um, and it's kind of funny how things will actually go full circle. Um, but back to that paper I did in college. Um, when I did it in college, um, I called it Buffalo Wild Wings. Okay, <laughs> that is what it is today, which is yeah. I, I laugh at it all the time. Um, but Jim, um, he wanted to call it Buffalo Wild Wings and Weck. And the reason he wanted to call it Buffalo Wild Wings and WEC is because he wanted to put the acronym together that would later on be very popular, BW3. Now, I'm going to really test everybody's memory because it's actually before my time even. There was a program back in the 60s called That Was the Week That Was, called TW3. That's where Jim copied it. (laughs) He wanted to make TW3 into BW3. So we added the WEC to get the three W's. 
know. That's, that's I got to tell you something, Paul. Paul, you know, for the past 10 years and just for full transparency to our audience, I've, I've known Scott since, I guess, 07 is when we inducted you into the Hall yep. of Fame. Isn't that right, Scott? Correct. So correct. Scott, and his, Scott, Scott and his wife, Barb, um, were part of the selections that we were making starting in 06 as I chair the Hall of Flame Committee in Buffalo. And each year what we try to do is we try to induct somebody who's made a difference in taking the chicken wing from the trash can to the center of the plate. And the first year we honored the, the place that it all began, which was the Anchor Bar. And then the next year we honored the company that took what the Anchor Bar began to Wall Street and then to the world. And we and we honored and celebrated uh, the late Jim Disbro and, of course, Scott Lowry. Scott has been coming to Buffalo with his wife, Barb, and oftentimes with their boys and with friends and family every year since and have been a tremendous influence on the Buffalo Wing Festival and happy to do uh, just this past week or two uh, while we were both up there for Labor Day weekend, invite Scott uh, and let Scott know that the Hall of Fame committee has voted him on to the actual committee itself. So he will be the first. He'll be not only an honoree and somebody who's won the Hall of Flame on honors, but he's now on the selection committee for those who come next. So he's been a great friend and what a great guy and what a great story. And just in, I'm learning so much from you, Scott, in this interview that over 10 years, I just never knew. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, there, there, there's so many little pieces. That's what's so hard to put all this together. I, I've started to write it down. Everybody tells me I need to write this. So I, I will get it written down, but like I say, at least it's getting down on audio tape today, some of the <laughs> true history, because there's a lot of mystery with Buffalo Wild Wings, which has actually been a very good thing. Um, again, I guess us not knowing really what we were doing, and well, actually, speaking to that, um, that actually was a big benefit to us. <laughs> Strange as it sounds, I think one of the you know uh, you talked about how we became a, a, a cult following, and 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 I thought about this, um, and I'm like, well, my first answer is, you know, that I I tended to um, personalize each of the customers. To me, every customer is very important. Um, so let's see where was I with um, it's it's. Well, it's cheaper to keep the customers you have than to bring in new customers. Right. And in our financial problems Absolutely. in our early days, um, I didn't have any advertising. So I concentrated on keeping the customers I had. And I think that's a very uh, thing for everybody to do out there. It's a lot easier to keep the customers you got than to try to bring new ones in. Um, where were we on this story? Uh, so to take us take us then from that first experience, that first store, and the, we were talking about the name and the BW3 and TW3. And so now we have the first unit operating. What came next? Okay. Um, well, yeah, let's see. We got the first store open. Uh, we did a whopping $300 the first day, which I thought was stellar. Um, I wanted to split it three ways with Jim. Um, forget the other partner. He said we needed to keep it for uh, capital to continue. Um, it was it was interesting. It, it was tough, as I basically can say. It uh, wasn't very easy. Basically, we didn't have very much money. We were very undercapitalized. Um, basically, we had to suck up all the hours. I worked open to close seven days a week along with one other partner, and Jim uh, 
did a lot of hours. Um, he wasn't into as many hours as uh, Mike and I were, but we were all working an awful lot of hours. I mean, I, I figured out at one point I was working 120 hours a week, uh, every week, with two days off the entire year. Um, Jim went home early. He went home at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. versus, you know, staying till 2 or 3 in the morning. So we gave him a break. He was older. But <laughs> Um, so what was the what, but what there had to be something driving that car there's no way that anyone is putting in those kinds of hours without a bigger picture in his mind of where things may be heading or where you where if you get past this hurdle what we where were we going what was the yeah. vision where where were you trying to go to and get to well, Jim was always the visionary I wanted to say this Jim I often compared us to uh uh, horse and carriage in a sense uh jim was the horses just charging forward and i was basically in the wagon back there pulling back on the reins um jim he had all these envisions of, of what we could do and stuff like that but then it was actually left to me to make those visions reality and so i was like going those are great ideas but i got to make them happen in the job site i've got to make the customers come in i got to figure out how to get the customers here and everything like that Jim handled all the finances where then I often said I was left with everything else. I took care of the operations, the purchasing for a while, though another partner took that over, um, all the development, all the marketing. Um, I took care of all those aspects of the company. We went from one store to a second store because Jim really said we've got to get multiple stores open. I was just looking to make an income for myself, quite honestly. I just wanted to make a living, you know, raise a family. But Jim always had visions of many stores. At one point we thought, well, maybe we could do 100 stores at all the campuses because we started at campuses and we thought, okay, this is our niche. There could probably be 100 good campuses out there. Let's go do them. Um, but again, we always came across the problem, like everybody does, undercapitalization. Nobody has enough money, um, nor do you have enough friends and family to borrow it from. So we uh, <laughs> we, we opened a second store um, with actually money from a, a friend, <laughs> and um, it, it didn't work out so well, the second store, already. I mean, we went from a, a first store that was somewhat successful, um, and Jim's saying, let's get more stores out there. Well, unfortunately, because the first store we found was outfitted with all the equipment and everything, we, we really gravitated to another location that had a whole bunch of equipment in it. It was a basically turnkey location, and that was in Westerville, Ohio. But unfortunately, one drawback about Westerville, Ohio, was that it was the home of the temperance movement, and it was a dry county or dry municipality. <laughs> so we went, in and, yeah, wow. we went in and did chicken wings in a dry municipality and just about went under, went out of business. Um, then, like many people do, to find a quick loan, you maybe just don't pay employees withholding. <laughs> so we got ourselves in a little bit of a problem there. And again, you've often people, there's rumors about how we got in troubles and we were a little bit messed up. But quite honestly, I, I tend to feel if you're not making mistakes, you're not pushing the envelope. If you're not making mistakes, you're not out in the real world where things happen to you. You know, um, I don't think anybody, you, know, you can do everything perfectly great for you but quite honestly the real world you're going to have ups and downs and you just got to mm -hmm. get through them so you know what other solution than to correct the problems we had with a second location was to open a third location not always the best idea but we went out and got another partner um 
so you know, we went from four partners to five partners to six, part, six partners. Um, the third location was a success. It was at, at the south end of Ohio State. Uh, we lived out the lease out in our Westville location and quickly closed it as soon as we could. Then we basically took those two good locations we had and got ourselves out of debt with uh, the government that we owed some money to. And then we were ready to start all over again. <laughs> so we opened up now yeah. with a third location again uh, with some more partners, a, a gentleman named John Rapazzi and Don Redmond down in Cincinnati. And the neat thing here and, was – excuse me? Yeah, I was going to say Rapazzi is the guy who really opened your eyes to some things, right? Yeah, well, actually, I'll, I'll, again, I'll segue here. Uh, the interesting thing about our company was we had people of all generations. So it was really, I think, beneficial to us that when we had a board meeting, um, while I was 22, I believe I actually had a partner who was younger than me. And then there was Jim, who was in his 30s, and we had a partner who was in his 40s, and we had one in his 50s and one in his 60s. So we covered the gamut, and everybody would always say, hey, what about my generation? What are you going to do for my generation in the store? So I think it was always a positive thing that we had to think about everybody out there. Um, but fortunately, actually, again, I'm uh, going sideways tangent here. Um, spicy food is, you know, covers all the generations, all the races, all the everything. It, it, it's a taste, and so it wasn't anything specific to any group, which is a really great benefit of doing chicken wings. Um, so anyways, let's see. We brought in Don and John, and we opened up the Cincinnati location, which actually this is our first time we actually had full liquor. And it was a teeny-weeny location, quite honestly. I think it barely was 70 seats or something like that. We just did tremendous business out of it. Um, so that gave us then you know, the ability to say, hey, let's keep moving forward. Um, but as you're noticing, every time we wanted to go forward, we had to bring on another partner. Um, so <laughs> we, we knew this was going to be a bit of a problem, and we kept liquidating, you know, our, our percentage in the company. But as Jim often pointed out, a small portion of a bigger pie is sometimes the same as a big portion of a small pie or bigger. And he was right. Yeah. So, he, was, um, he was so right. So we went on to, I think at this point, uh, we had ideas to open up a store in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, which is way out of our concentric circles, which is kind of a bit of a, a problem for us down the road, and another one in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, we got the Steamboat one open in 87, and then in the f October of 87 came a Black Friday or Thursday or Monday, whatever it was. Um, but there was a bad day in the markets there, and our investor backed out of the deal. Now, we could have taken the court for you know needing the investment and stuff, but who wants a partner that's going to leave you in the lurch? And fortunately, that John Rapazzi actually came over, and we owed a contractor $50,000 on Friday, and he really took a liking to Jim, myself, and which was our fifth partner, Mark Lutz. Um, Mark came in and actually replaced the other partner, uh, Mike Balsam. So he was the one that came in and took over the purchasing and stuff like that. Um, so he, he really was like a father to the three of us and mentored us all the time. Um, again, a sad note of, of, of the whole story here. His son was actually the quarterback from the Marshall team that died in that crash. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he, he really had a, a you know attachment to us. Um, and, and we loved him and everything like that. So it was a real good father-son relationship and, and kind of filled in for his loss. Um, so he was always there, you know, guiding us and stuff and um, was a real good mentor myself. Uh, but he, you know, Scott, he, he I'm came ask you. Yep. I'm going to I want to go ahead and finish your thought, and then I want to ask you a question as we go into our mid-show mid break. 
Okay. Um, no, but he, he came over and gave us that $50,000, no requirement on stock, just sat there and said, you know, you, you just, you know, owe it to me. Um, I don't know why he felt responsible. Maybe he, he brought the person who was the investor along or whatever. But, you know, we got through that 11th hour situation again. So <laughs> lots of ups and well, downs. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit now that you're, you know, close to a half dozen stores. We want to start talking about some brand standards that you were or perhaps not. Um, adhering to to start really gaining some traction and purchase with the brand. But we'll do that in just a moment. You're listening to Franchise Today. I'm Stan Friedman along with Paul Segreto, and we're talking today with Scott Lowry, co-founder of the iconic Buffalo Wild Wings. Franchise Today is brought to you by the Franchise Foundry, where they've been bringing emerging brands to market for more than 30 years. The Foundry fosters healthy, sustainable growth for their clients, the kind that comes from experience. The Franchise Foundry provides both coaching and consulting, a hybrid approach, delivering more effective solutions for both the franchisor's corporate team as well as for their franchisees. Franchise Foundry is rich in practical hands-on experience and expertise with general business management, operational and change management, digital marketing, and of course, franchise recruitment and development. Plus, the Foundry team can also assist you with creating roadmaps for potential mergers and acquisitions and provide you with all the guidance needed to navigate them. Learn more about Paul Segreto and the Franchise Foundry and their expanding list of clients at www.franchisefoundry.com. Just reading that commercial, Paul, kind of makes me wonder if Scott Lowry and company might have done well to know you way back in the day. Franchise Today is also brought to you <laughs> it would have been helpful. <laughs> Also brought to you by FRM Solutions, offering best-in-class CRM and document management software designed specifically for franchising. FRM empowers real-time business intelligence, communication, and collaboration between all members of the franchisor's team and their prospective and existing franchisees. This enables you to simply and seamlessly track, access, and manage all messages to and from prospects and existing franchisees, including text. Legal and compliance is simplified as well with FRM's document management, and even site visits can be digitally facilitated and scored with FRM. Make today the day you give FRM a look and assure that all of your candidate and franchisee correspondence, including texts, are being permanently tracked and stored in candidate and franchisee records. FRM even provides state-of-the-art digital experiences for your prospective franchisees, replacing old-style virtual brochures. No long-term contracts, multiple upgrades at no cost each year, no excuses, just solutions on the web at frmsolutions.com. So, Scott, we're at you know, a bunch of partners and a bunch of stores, and at some point, somebody's having to start document processes, procedures, branding, things that help you gain purchase with the four or five and, and start building a brand. Talk a little bit about how that looked. Well, actually, I'm going to blow you away. It was actually day one. <laughs> and I'm going to actually give the credit to Jim again on this. And, and, and again, it blew me away. You know, I, I set up the pumps that first day for business. And um, Jim's like, okay, well, now you got to label the pumps and say how much is on this one and this one and that one. I'm like, Jim, there's just you and this other guy here. Why do we need to do that? There's just three of us here. Who's not going to know that? And he's like, well, down the road. I'm like, there's three of us here. There's no down the road right now. But no, he wanted it from day one. <laughs> and so 
sure enough, I, I, I put on there, you know, well, one pump for a single, two pumps for a double, three for the large order, and so on. So, no, we started that from day one. And, and actually, I'm really glad you said that because uh, I'm going to try to get to where you want to get with the franchising. After we, we got where I was just at with opening the Cincinnati store, um, w- that's when we knew we, we can't continue doing just partners in. We knew we had to do mm-hmm. something else, and, and we knew that basically we couldn't generate enough money out of the stores to get our growth where we wanted to be. So actually, that's where we started looking at franchising. And we decided uh, about 1988, 89, I believe, that we had about $100,000 and we could either put that money into the next store and be nine stores, or we could take that money and, and go into franchising. And how simple it would be to, to open franchises and have these people go and do it for us, and we'll just take the money from them, right? <laughs> well, it didn't turn out exactly that way. So, uh, Never we does. Actually, <laughs> no, we contacted uh, a company uh, called Francorp, which I'm sure you're aware of, um, out of Chicago. I don't know if they still exist. They probably do. Um, and we went to them and basically bought their package. It was $100,000 to have them set us all up for franchising. Uh, the one funny thing that I <laughs> always laugh when uh, we dealt with them, exactly what you're bringing up about systems and stuff. And most people, if they're going to start a franchise, they're almost starting it without much experience. You know, fortunately, we'd had you know six, seven years of experience running stores, some ups and downs, and all that, and we'd started developing a lot of manuals and stuff. Um, so actually, when we went to that company, they were really shocked at what we came in and wanted to incorporate into the stuff that they were planning. When they pulled out and said, oh, let's do an operations manual. Let's put your hours, put to this, put to this. I went, oh, no, we got this two-inch document we want to put in there. They looked at us, and their eyes went, holy cow. <laughs> so, no, we were pretty prepared at that operationally-wise. And, and, well, I guess I'll have to take credit for it. I was the one who basically started with one page and, and developed it from there. Um, I developed all the marketing, all the management, uh, all the management training, all the uh, operational documents for closing the store, operating the store. Um, basically, I'm the one that put all that together over all the years. And then even going forward, as we did the franchising, I had to rewrite the franchise manual because that's a you have a franchise manual and you have an operations manual, and they're 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 similar but they're different. And as people right. go into franchising, they'll understand that slight difference. The operations manual is incorporated, you know, incorporated into your um, franchise manual, your operations. But some things for franchisees don't apply to your day-to-day operations, you know, because you're setting up a franchisee who's going to turn around and pick their own prices, banking, location, some of those things that they're going to do. Um, separate than from a corporate location. So, you know, th- it, listening to you, uh, Scott, as we're, we're we're going through this, um, I can't help you know form some questions in my mind. I mean, obviously, I thought that's pretty interesting that you were in a dry county. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't see it being you know wing, wings, water, and sports. Uh, yeah, just one of our many mistakes um, would have lasted, but. You know, as you're going through this and you're talking about, you know, bringing on partners, you're looking at, you know, um, changing the business model, bringing in the franchise um, dynamic to it or component to it. But there was something else going on um, that I'd like you to touch on because the, um, the look, the view of wings was actually changing from, you know, the part of the bird that was thrown away 
two when they were first served, you know, you can buy them for, you know, 10 cents a wing to be in something so popular that all of a sudden it had to, you know, start affecting your costs and obviously uh, affect your business model to some extent. Explain a little bit how you were dealing with that simultaneously as you were going through all these other things. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, well, basically, you know, wings started off very, when we started, it was very cheap, 30 cents, 35 cents a pound. Um, and nobody was aware of them. Nobody was doing them. And you say that price is now up to whatever, $2 and something a pound. Uh, this is the one thing we're going to tell everybody out there. And I even tell guys who come and work at my house, you know, because we got in trouble by not basically consistently raising our prices. Okay, it's just as simple as that. You've mm-hmm. got to constantly raise your prices every year, at least the cost of living. Because if you don't, then three years down the road, while you try to hold costs for your customers and stuff like that, and they're maybe appreciating it or they're not appreciating it, when you finally realize, I'm not doing this for a profit anymore, I'm almost losing my you know, house because I'm trying to give the customer a, a, a product you know, that I can't afford to give them, you got to raise the price. You got to look out for yourself. You got to keep yourself in business, and, and um, you just got to stay ahead. Yeah, and, and who would have thought? You know, um, only two wings to a bird. I mean, obviously, uh, how wings would have become such a commodity, and in a relatively short period of time, and probably as you were growing, you were causing some of it. Well, actually, we did. It's very interesting. Um, I ran into a gentleman a few years back, and and he said that his brother, who's at Ohio State, did a, they created a case study at Ohio State University about buffalo wild wings affecting the poultry industry, that we took a product that was fourth in place and elevated to second. So I didn't know that when I started this little franchise that I was going to also affect the poultry industry. That's huge in my book. I, I, I didn't know. And they now have that as a case study. How can you do what Buffalo Wild Wings did, which is to elevate a low-end product to a higher-end level and, and, and thereby raising so the price? Because the poultry guys are happy to raise their prices, so they want to know how they're going to take the next low product. But as I said, you take the next one low up, you're going to pass by the one you just passed by. But you know, something's always going to be were, low and something's always going to be high. You were an early-stage disruptor. I love it. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> we we made mistakes left, right, and center. Um, but you know, they were they were good mistakes a lot of times, and you learned from them. But here we and we grew from. But here we go now. Now we're franchising. So talk to us about um, how that pace picked things up and how your roles began to change, and you know where you got to the place where you started to realize that um, we're going to need more layers to this than just ourselves if we're going to continue scaling. How many stores are you at now? When that um, occurred well, to you, Scott? Well, okay, I'll go again. I'm kind of picking up where we were. Uh, so we started franchising about 1990, and you'll really appreciate this. Let me give a little. How did I franchise? I put table tents on the tables. That was our marketing for franchises. That's how we got our leads. That's how we got our franchises. So a customer, needless to say, picked up a table tent, and wanted to franchise. <laughs> so we were selling to our customers the franchises, and um, we had a couple people buy-in in in 1991. Uh, They were very inexpensive. uh, And the dual location was very inexpensive because we'd been doing it by the seat of our pants and we were getting by for, you know, $100,000 or something. So we thought if we could open a store with $200,000, we got all the money in the world. People could actually afford that kind of. And so a lot of people were able to get into our franchises early because they were 
fairly inexpensive, and we didn't expect a whole lot because, you know, we we knew the expense they were getting into. We didn't want them to get into a whole lot, just the same as we didn't want to get into a whole lot. We just wanted to get the store open for as least cost profit, you know, as possible, <clears throat> and make them as profitable as possible. Um, no, I lost track where I was at. You know, it's interesting that well, it's interesting that you mentioned about the table tent, um, you know, marketing because I had had a conversation with the. Uh, a uh, late friend of ours, uh, Fred DeLuca, obviously the founder of Subway. Uh, I think it was back in 2010, and we were talking about franchise development. And he had said, you know, in the early stage, we probably sold our first four to 500 franchises based upon the 800 number on the napkin and the 800 number on the, uh, on the, on the cup. And I think yep. that lends a lot to what everybody's talking about today, which is the customer experience. But in essence, that's what you were doing. You know, somebody was sitting there saying, wow, I love these wings. I love the beer. I love watching, you know, sports. You know, I could see myself do it. Oh, look, they're franchising. And based upon that customer experience, they, um, they jump into, uh, you know, asking about a franchise. I mean, and today I think many do not do that to the extent that they should. So it was interesting that you have mentioned that. But here's something, Scott. You know, we're running uh, short on time, and certainly yep. uh, we could probably talk for another uh, three hours, uh, I'm sure, and you got an exciting story uh, to tell. Stan, I know you had something on your mind. Well, well actually, let me get in here uh, about the franchise. Start, cause we're okay, running. go right ahead. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we, we went to open our first franchise in 1992 here in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, in the Flats. Then in 93, we opened two more. Then in 94, we opened four more. Then the next year, we opened eight more. Then it was 16 more. And, and, and literally, we went through this exponential growth. And I, I really think it was those those last two, the, 20, the, the, the eight and the 16, where we did 24 stores in two years. That was the point when we started going, okay, the wheels are starting to come off. We need to bring in some other people, um, some expertise from the restaurant field to assist us. Because, again, <laughs> we didn't have any experience in any of this. So it was about that time that we started bringing in um, some uh, expertise from the field to help guide us. And also at that point, we'd had another investor uh, join in um, who helped guide us to the next phase of trying to go to a public company. So you had that vision a few years prior to uh, the, the corporation actually uh, taking the plunge and going public, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, again, I, I always want to give Jim really the credit. I mean, in a sense, he was the visionary. He always wanted to push forward to higher and higher levels. I, I guess I'll say I'm complacent. I was very happy just to make the living I was and taking care of what we had at that time because at every level I felt we were doing quite well. But, you know, what the heck, let's go for more. I, I, I was in for – you know, in for an ounce, in for a pound. So let's do it all. You know, Scott, a lot of um, a lot of our guests, Paul and I, each week we talk with a great many emerging brands who go to market today with a lot more resources and tools available to them than you guys ever had going by the seat of your pants. And even with the best of tools and the best of intentions and, frankly, even with better capitalization, uh, too many of those brands don't gain the purchase, don't gain the traction, and don't gain the kind of brand loyalty that you guys seem. I mean, I look at you like I looked at In-N-Out Burgers, like I looked at a, you know, a Chick-fil-A. There are a handful of brands around the country 
that really gain a groundswell of consumer loyalty. And, um, and then, you know, you have to translate that to the franchise operators. How did you find it? How did you protect the brand, I guess, in the early days and make certain that your operators were continuing that tradition that, that created and fostered that brand loyalty? Um, well, I'll say a couple things here. Uh, when it came to uh, um, loyalty and stuff like that, um, I think um, – where was I? I was back to the customers. Oh, that was it. The customer because of our inexperience, quite honestly, because we had no experience, we were always looking to anybody and everybody for advice. So we were more than happy to get advice and suggestions from our customers, our suppliers. Um, you know, chips with cheese was invented by a customer. The Buffalito was a uh, contest we had uh, with customers, and they came up with that name. My suppliers, I, I looked at them for resources. Anybody and everybody we relied on because we didn't have the experience or knowledge. And I, I think that really helped everybody then feel part of it because we were asking their help, and they could buy in. That's great. Yeah. And in a little bit of time we have left to us, Scott, I know that you're, act, you're not actively engaged any longer in the business, but a large part of our audience are people who are in the early stages of franchising, who are listening to the down-to-earth story that you're sharing that they can now look at. Everybody knows what Buffalo Wild Wings has become, but you know, few people have been close enough to a conversation like this to hear how this brand began. And so many of our listeners are right there in the same place, wondering if someday can they take the vision that they had uh, for their business and, and their service to, to the greatness that you guys have accomplished in building the brand of Buffalo Wild Wings. If somebody wanted to get in touch with you, Scott, and um, and have a conversation offline, uh, would you be willing to tell our audience how they might be able to reach you? Um, actually, I don't know, because as you know, I'm not very sophisticated <laughs> when it comes to all this stuff. <laughs> Do you have an email address? <laughs> um. I, I guess uh, shoot me a, an email. Um, boy, I'm going to get a lot of emails here. Okay. <laughs> shoot them to um, – it's S-L-O-W-E-R-Y-B-W-3 at sbcglobal.net. There you um, go. I will, I, I will tell everybody I will probably respond to you, but not quickly. <laughs> You know well. <laughs> well, and there again, so some transparency and some honesty. Paul, any any last questions or thoughts, Paul? No, I really I really don't. I think it was very enjoyable. I um, I'm glad you had an opportunity to uh, set the record straight. Um, I'm glad that we have some quotes from you, Scott, because as I often do in preparation for you know the show, I, I always try to find a quote, and I've got to say that. Uh, I probably went 20 pages deep into search results, and I couldn't find a quote from you. So uh, it, it's <laughs> nice to hear you speaking about, you know, the brand that you co-founded and obviously uh, have a passion for and, and, and love. So I'm glad we can contribute to that. 
Well, that's part of the mystery and mystique about Buffalo Wild Wings is, you know, and, I, and I've tried to do it that way sometimes. I mean, actually, a guy named Ron Paul gave us a great compliment years ago. He said we were a stealth concept. He sat there and said, you know, you guys developed across the country, and we didn't even see you. We had to go and redo our <laughs> system to, to make sure we you, we didn't yeah. get uh, uh, snuck up on again. <laughs> I mean, we, we got through his system, and he was very upset that he had, we had not been recognized. But it was thankful that we hadn't gotten recognized because then it was never out there for other people to copy us in the early days mm-hmm. so it worked out kind of yeah, again, our, our naivety really worked out wonderful for us in the long run <laughs> that's great Scott. i want to thank you i really that's want to great. thank you for joining us today and um i want to thank your lovely wife barb for um for being the power behind you that's enabled you to do so much of the things that you've done in your life and, and you guys are a great couple great people and i'm proud to call you my friends Thank you, uh, Stan. Appreciate that very much. Paul, I look forward to meeting you someday. I'm sure we'll see you out there in the world. If you're around Stan, come to a wing festival. <laughs> yeah, he keeps he keeps inviting me. I'm going to have to um, – now, now I've got some other people to, that I know up there, so I, I definitely uh, look forward to it. We might have to do that come next Labor Day. Uh, yeah, and if anybody wants to give, see, uh, see me, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody at the wing festival, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I could give Mr. Chestnut a run for his money. <laughs> there you go. I doubt that. Quite Good luck. <laughs> Two, 220 wings this year, Paul. 220 yeah. wings in 12 uh, minutes. In 12 minutes. That's, that's insane. That's insane. Yep. Oh, my God. No, well, Scott, it's a, it's a pleasure to meet you, and it's a pleasure to speak with you today, and I certainly do look forward to uh, meeting you in the future. Thanks for being our guest today. Well, thank you, too. This, I told you it went by quick, and there's still more to talk about, so maybe another day. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. Well, Stan, Take care, gentlemen. another, um, another uh, great entrepreneur sharing their, uh, their story, their, their uh, trials and tribulations, and I just absolutely love you know, Scott's honesty and, uh, and transparency. Absolutely agree with you, Paul, and um... – Enjoyed really getting to know Scott over the years and appreciate him sharing so much of his life with us here today. Yep. I think it's great. Well, until next week, and I I really want to mention next week's guests, we have Joyce Mazzaro and Michael Side on the show. That's going to be an exciting show. We're going to be talking about their new uh, book, uh, Franchise Management for Dummies. Certainly uh, anything but for dummies, I'm sure. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And then, of course, uh, we have Sam Ballas from East Coast Wings that will be coming up on October 4th. We're, uh, we're lining up for a great uh, end-of-the-year push. So I'm looking uh, forward to it. To all our friends and, and, and colleagues and family in, in Texas, Florida, and any other state affected by Irm and Harvey, uh, our thoughts continue for you. Uh, please feel free to reach out to Stan or I if you need any type of assistance. We're more than happy to help you any way we can or direct you to people that uh, possibly could help you. Uh, for people specifically in the, uh, the Houston market, um, especially franchisees, if you're having a difficult time uh, recovering from this and, and feel you need somebody to, uh, to speak with, if it's just a guidance, coaching, or motivation, I'm here for you. That's, that's uh uh, on my shoulders, I'm, I'm here to help you. There's no cost for that. Please take advantage of that. Uh, I understand what it's like to uh, to try to dig out of um, uh, a bad time. Stan, you be safe, and uh, we'll talk again 
next week. Until then, my name is Paul Segreto wishing you the best, the very best in this great, great thing we call franchising. And Franchise Today is out. Franchise pros stand amazed. Paul Segreto. Time to show you the way of franchising today. Hey, do you possess the spirit of an entrepreneur? Wanna lay your business plan down like a rug or a floor? Or maybe you have a dream of opening a chain of delis? Or whatever passion lights that pilot light under your belly? Or do you want to start a business, fam, using the proven trademark from another brand? Huh. And grow together and expand like a rage of fire From a single to a multi-unit empire Well, pay attention to this podcast that you hear It's streaming in HD, so fine tune both of your ears And standing Paul lays down the law Whether you want to be a franchisee or a franchisor It's all about sustainable growth, the sensible franchising Proving concepts to smart enterprises So use your left and right side of your brain And absorb this knowledge here of franchising today Franchising today, sustainable growth, the sensible franchising. Franchise today, sustainable growth, the sensible franchising. Franchise today. Franchise today. Franchising today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.